Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current series, Connect, which dives into different relationships. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, good morning to everybody here in the house, as well as those of you online. We're glad you're here, and we're going to bring this series called Connect to a close today. So I'm excited about it. So if asked if you have a good life, I think most people would respond whether or not they believe their life is good now, that they want to have a good life. And that would lead me to ask, so then what makes a life good? In 1938, researchers at Harvard University began a study on human development, and the study set out to understand human health by investigating not what made people sick, but what made people thrive. It has recorded the experiences of participants' lives, more or less as they were happening from childhood troubles to first loves to their final days. Henry Keene was only 14 years old and living in Boston's West End in a tenement with no running water when researchers from the study first knocked on his family's door and asked his perplexed parents if they could make a record of his life. So the study tracked Henry's life every year from 1941 to the year he passed away in 2009. In fact, the study has tracked the lives of over 2,000 people, and this year, 2023, the directors of the study published their findings in a book called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Now, spoiler alert, I'm going to share with you their main conclusion. For 84 years and counting, the Harvard study has tracked the same individuals asking thousands of questions and taking hundreds of measurements to find out what really keeps people happy and healthy. Through all the years of studying these lives, one health, one health, mental health, and uh, one's health, mental health, and longevity, contrary to what many people think, is it's not their career achievement or exercise or a healthy diet that makes them thrive and live long and be happy. And, and obviously, don't get me wrong, those things are good and they matter, but one thing continuously demonstrates a broad and enduring importance to people's lives as seen as being happy. It's good relationships. Good relationships with other people. In fact, good relations are significant enough that if we had to take all 84 years of that study and boil it down to one single principle of living, one life investment that's supported by similar findings across a wide variety of other studies, it would be this, that, that good relationships keep us physically healthier and emotionally happier, period. That's what they say. So here's what I want you to know. As we look at scripture, we are created for connection. So I want to share with you a story from that study. In October of 2004, the Harvard study met with Henry Keene and his wife, Rosa, who was, who they were now, uh, who was now a participant in the study, Rosa was. So on the day of their annual interview, one of the questions was this, what is your greatest fear? 
Rosa read the question out loud and then looked across the table at her husband, Henry, now in their 70s. Rosa and Henry had lived in their house and sat at the same table together almost most mornings of those past 50 years. And between them sat a pot of tea, an open pack of Oreos, half eaten, and an audio recorder. In the corner of the room was a video camera, and next to the video camera sat a young Harvard researcher named Charlotte, quietly observing and taking notes. It's quite the question, Rosa said. My greatest fear, Henry said to Charlotte, or our greatest fear. The discussion went like this. I like hard questions in a certain way, Rosa said. Well, good, Henry said, you go first. Uh, Rosa was quiet for a moment, and then Henry, uh, and then she told Henry her greatest fear was that he might develop a serious health condition or that she would have another stroke. Henry agreed that those were scary possibilities, but he said that they were getting to a point now where something like that was probably inevitable. They spoke at length about how a serious illness might affect their adult child's lives and each other. And eventually Rosa admitted that there was only so much a person could anticipate and there was no use getting upset before it happened. Is there another question? Henry asked Charlotte. What's your greatest fear, Hank? Rosa asked. I was hoping you would forget to ask me, Henry said, and they laughed. Henry poured more tea for Rosa, took another Oreo for himself, and then was quiet for some time. It's not a hard one to answer, he said. It's, it's just not something I like to think about, to be honest. Well, they sent this poor girl all the way from Boston, so you better answer, Rosa said. It's ugly, I guess, he said his voice wavering. Go ahead, Rosa said. Henry replied, I don't want to die first. That's my fear. I'll be left here without you. You know, it's a powerful and touching story of how we're created for connections. And the Bible tells us that over and over again. All we have to do is look at the beginning of creation and see that humans were created for relational connection with each other. Regardless of your personality type, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert or somewhere in between, we were all created for connections with other human beings. The first two chapters of the book of Genesis tell us how God created the universe and the earth and everything on the earth. And when he made it, God proclaimed that the creation was good. Over and over again, God proclaims that what he has created is good. And when all of it is complete, he looked over everything that he had made. And and the Bible says that God saw that it was very good. You see, in God's eyes, everything that he had created was good until. Until he looked at everything that he had created and he realized something. For the first and the only time during creation, God says that something was not good. In the second chapter of Genesis, after God created the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden and after he gave the man a purpose, God saw that something was not good. 
And this is what we read. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God looked around and he realized that all of the animals and all of the creatures that he created were not suitable for the man. So God created another human being, a woman. And now neither of them were alone. Author and ministry leader Jenny Allen writes about building deep community in a lonely world in her book called Find Your People. And in her book, she writes about how the creation story shows us that we were created for community. God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed to thrive, to grow, and to live together on the earth. The first two humans lived together with God in the garden. They were naked and unashamed. No shame before each other and no shame before God. Just free, beautiful love and the safety of authentic relationships. They shared the goal of caring for the creation. They were given a boundary, just one, and they all then they had all the time in the world to enjoy God, his creation, and each other. Now, Jenny continues, you know, when I slow down and really consider what life looked like back in the Garden of Eden, she says, I see five realities. The first reality is this, proximity. The people enjoyed physical closeness with each other and with God. Second, transparency. They were naked and unashamed, fully known and fully loved. Three, they had accountability. They lived under submission to God and to each other. Four, they had a shared purpose. They were given a clear calling by God to care for the creation. And five, consistency. They couldn't quit each other. They needed each other and they shared everything together. And, and so, after those five realities, Ginny concludes, these five realities provide the framework for how we build community in our lives today. Think about it. Her insights are very important for us to understand that first, that we were created for community, and second, that this is how we build and enjoy significant relationships with one another. Proximity is about connecting with each other. And I would expand what she said to say, not just physical closeness, but it could be emotional closeness and not physical closeness. But it's the idea but that you're emotionally close. Transparency is about being real with one another, being honest. To have healthy relationships, we have to be open with each other. Uh, Brene Brown writes, staying vulnerable is a risk that we have to take if we want to have an experience connection. Accountability is committing to do the hard work to keep the relationship connection strong and healthy, even when one person or the other steps on the toes of the other. Shared purpose is about what the thing is that brings us together. And then consistency. It's about regularly connecting with each other. Now, I recognize that sometimes it feels like some relationships just happen, but you have to be consistent. You have to pour into any good relationship. As I was thinking through this in my life, in my, life you know, my best friend is my wife, Cynthia, and, and I could walk you through how those five realities show up in our friendship, but, but I think that would be too easy. So let me choose somebody else. My good friend, Sammy Ortiz, who lives in Tampa. 
I first met Sammy at a church leadership conference in 2006 where he spoke on a subject that I was curious about. It was about racism in the church, and uh, our friendship actually didn't really gel immediately until a few years later when we both found ourselves serving on the board for our movement of churches, Converge. And we would get together quarterly, and we would talk about things that we were working on in Converge. We would talk about our lives. Uh, We should also talk about that common interest that we had about, is there racism in the body of Christ? And we would just get together and talk. and, And, you know, as time went on, I realized that our relationship was growing stronger. Uh, Sammy was patient as I listened to him about what our common interest was. Uh, he was patient with me, and, and then that time led to an even closeness when he went through a personal crisis, and we walked through that together. Uh, and, and though it's always really been a long-distance friendship, there's always been a, a mutual transparency that took us to a depth of emotional closeness where we really connected with one another. And through that, we became accountable to one another. And neither one of us would let the other one off the hook for not calling, not being real with one another. We consistently connect with each other several times a month, even though it's on the phone, and we, we share that purpose that we have in common of seeing reconciliation in the church. Now, here's the weird thing. Though we're rarely under the same roof, Sammy and I are committed to our friendship with each other because we see how it helps us grow spiritually and relationally and how we lead in the body of Christ because of our friendship. So the first biblical truth is that we connect with one another because we were made for connection. Here's the second one. We are better together. We're better together. You know, being a Christian is not a solo affair. Even if you're a lone ranger type, you are part of a group of people, whether you want it or recognize it or not, you are part of something bigger than yourself. And the theological reality of the church is that you are always part of the greater body of Christ. Again, let me turn to the words of Jenny Allen. She writes, throughout scripture, we see that God keeps building communities. In the Old Testament, he starts with a family. That family becomes a people group. That people group grows into a nation, the nation of Israel. And then throughout the New Testament, we see God's heart for the local church. And this is the way God moves throughout history. Family, community, a nation, the local church that reaches out to the world. God loves for us to be together. God loves for us to be on mission together. God loves us to worship him together. Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I also. So we know that our togetherness matters to God. You know, the Bible was penned in the context of people, daily living, interconnected lives. The teachings of Scripture to Israel and to the church assume people belong to and depend on each other, that they're an interconnected group. In fact, when you read through most of the Bible, when it says the word you, 
in the original Hebrew and in the original Greek, it nearly always indicates the plural form of you. So it's you plural, not you singular. You see, the Bible doesn't speak to individuals. It's written for a people living out their faith together. Why? Because we're better together. Jenny Allen goes on to point out that there are five ideas from Scripture that demonstrate that as Christ followers, we're better together and, and why we are better together. The first Scripture she quotes is from the book of Proverbs. It may be one you're familiar with. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. What God's word is saying here is that we make each other better, that, that in relationship with one another, we encourage one another, we build one another up. Yes, we confront one another when we're having a problem or need to be corrected. So, so let, that think, let that sink in. Think about your connections with other people. Do they make you better or do they make you worse? If they make you better, that's awesome. Lean into those relationships. If they make you worse, then you need to take some time to evaluate what's going on. If the people who make you worse are friends, it's probably time to expand your friend group, get some new friends. And I would recommend that they have a common faith in Jesus Christ with you. If the people who make you worse are family, then you need to set some boundaries with them and possibly get some help from a third party like a counselor. I am a big advocate of counseling, so I encourage you to do that. You're investing in the relationship. You know, as I've gone through this week thinking about this message and I've reflected on my life, I'm fully aware that I'm a better person, a better husband, a better father, a better leader, a better pastor because of my relationships with people. You know, time and time again, Scripture tells us that, to get, that together we make each other better in the body of Christ. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he told them that he longed to see them. Specifically, he said he longed to see them so that he could help them grow stronger. And then he explains how being together makes everyone better. As he says, when they come together, they both, that both he and they will be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. In other words, they'd be encouraging one another to keep on following Jesus and doing what God calls them to do, no matter how challenging it can be. Now, with regards to spiritual encouragement, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews writes this, encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. This verse is not telling you to go around and be uh, the behavior police and look at everybody's actions and declare what's a sin and what's not. But what it's telling us is to encourage one another to steer clear of the temptations that lead us into sinful behavior and actions and lead us away from God. That's why at times as your pastor, I'll remind us of the things that can lead us to sin and remind us of the importance of removing temptation from our lives and of confessing our sins so that we can be in a close connection with God. In the New Testament, we are given this vision that as Christians, 
We make up the, the big C, the, the church, the, the capital C church, which is also called the body of Christ. And in Paul's writings, we see that we are all a needed and a necessary part of the church, the body of Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul goes into detail explaining that our human bodies are made up of many different parts, and we need each one of those parts for our bodies to operate. But then he takes those important roles of the body and he flips the script and he says, the church, the body of Christ is a body too. And we all have important parts and every part is important. And he concludes that all of you together are Christ's body and each is a part of it. So in other words, we complete each other to make up the body of Christ. And with the idea of being the body of Christ, where each part is needed and necessary, this also pertains to how we use the giftings that God has put into each of our lives. So the Bible tells us that we belong to one another and that we all have different gifts from God to fulfill the purpose that God has called for each one of us to fulfill. So we need to connect with one another because we're better together, because we are the body of Christ. You see, we're called to be a community of people on a mission, delighting in God and in each other, redeemed and reconciling the world to Christ and bringing them and inviting them into the family of God. We were built for relationship and we're better together. Now, with that in mind, we have to do something. We must prioritize our relationships. To connect with one another in meaningful ways, we have to make one another a priority. So students and scholars of the Bible have noticed that in the New Testament, there are dozens of commands that tell us how we're supposed to interact with one another as fellow followers of Jesus. Carl George, the founder of the Barna organization, notes that there are 59, he calls them one another's. These are the commands that scripture tells us to do certain things with one another. For instance, love one another, pray for one another, and greet one another. That's just a sampling. But when I read through that list, I see the command to love one another comes up more than any of the other commands. And while it may depend on your Bible translation, in that list that Carl George put together, 13 of the 59 one another's say love one another. So that tells us that if we're going to prioritize our relationship, we must do so by loving one another. That theme of loving one another is very clear with the exact command being repeated so many times. And Jesus made that command to love one another the very definition of what it means to be his disciple. In the Gospel of John, he said this, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not optional. It's what defines us to the world as a disciple of Jesus. So if we're not loving one another, we need to assess that and evaluate that and decide how we're going to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to help us forgive or do whatever it takes to love one another.
Because loving one another is what we do, and that's how we prioritize our lives. <coughs> Billy Graham, the great evangelist, understood this command to love one another. One of the unique things about Billy Graham is that he provided spiritual counsel for 12 sitting presidents, from Harry S. Truman all the way to Barack Obama. Now, years ago, during the scandal involving President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, Billy Graham was invited to the White House to meet with President Clinton. And for that meeting, he took some criticism, in fact, a lot, from his fellow Christians for accepting the invitation. Why? Because they thought he was condoning sin. And so Billy Graham responded to his critics this way. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. And it's my job to love. You know, here at Valley Brook, our vision is love God, love people. Because we know that when we do that, we will change the world, even if it's one person at a time. So we must love one another as God commands us to do so. And sometimes that's hard. It's hard to love people even though we're called to and commanded to. So uh, I appreciate the, the writing and the leadership of Pastor Mark Batterson. He's the pastor of National Community Church in Washington, D.C., and he's a prolific writer. In his most recent book, Please Sorry Thanks, he quotes the verse that tells us that Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. And he writes about loving people even when we don't agree with them. He says this, love is grace plus truth. Grace means I'll forgive you no matter what. Truth means I'll be honest with you no matter what. Truth minus grace, he says, is hot sauce. It's all head and no heart. Grace minus truth is weak sauce. It's all heart and no head. Grace plus truth, he writes, is our secret sauce as Christians. And then he goes on and he points out that when Jesus was presented with the woman caught in the act of adultery, he didn't condemn and he didn't condone. He found the middle way, a third way, or you could say the Jesus way. Love doesn't compromise its convictions, but it is moved by compassion. And Patterson writes, there is a way to disagree agreeably, but it takes humble boldness. Humility is the willingness to admit fault when you're wrong. Boldness is the willingness to risk your reputation for what's right. It takes tremendous courage to live according to your convictions, especially in a culture where it's wrong to say that something is wrong. It's choosing biblical correctness over and against political correctness. And he concludes saying this about his church. We have four principles for peacemaking that serve as our guides. And I'm going to list them because I think they're important for us. He says, number one, listen well when you don't agree with somebody. Number two, ask anything. Number three, disagree freely. And number four, this is key, love regardless. If you and I are going to prioritize relationships, 
We have to love regardless. But in that list of one another's, there's a lot more. So let me return to that list. Uh, While none of the commands are repeated as many times as love one another, there are some themes that come across uh, through that time, like uh, serving one another and maintaining unity. But as I read through the list of those commands, I think they could all follow under one other heading, and, and that would be encouragement. And it's an important realization because if we're going to prioritize relationships, we must encourage one another. In fact, Scripture clearly commands us with these words, so encourage each other and build each other up. You know, we all need encouragement. In fact, studies show that we need three times more encouragement to offset one word of criticism. So imagine what would happen if every time we moved into a conversation, we intentionally started it off with a compliment of the other person. It would dramatically change our relationships because if you're like me, that's not how I normally operate. And and unfortunately, a lot of us don't start with encouragement. But when we do, it's noticeable. I'm on a board, and this week uh, I had a conversation with one of our board members, and he started off the conversation very complimentary of me, and quite honestly, it caught me off guard because we've had lots of conversations. He's never done that. And, and then as I reflected, I go, you know, that's, that's not a strength of mine. Now, thankfully, I, I am married to somebody who has the gift of, of encouragement, and, and Cynthia is a great encouragement to you and to other people, and I've learned a lot by her. And, and sometimes she will chide me in a loving way and say, hey, you you need to start that conversation off with encouragement instead of getting right down to the purpose for the phone call. It's something that I am still working on. I haven't arrived. So to sum all this up, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up, we are hardwired to connect with one another. That's how God created us. And when we connect, we need to see that being in community helps us be the very best version of ourselves that we can be. And so we have to make connecting a priority. With that in mind, I want to challenge you to make a decision to look at your most significant relationships and choose one or two of the most important ones and decide to say something encouraging to those people every day this week. Now, candidly, uh, you know, I try to uh, write my sermons during the week, and then I set it aside and let it marinate a little bit. And uh, honestly, uh, you know, I, I hadn't thought of the closing challenge that I had today until I looked at my notes today, and I felt very convicted. I felt convicted because my challenge is this, is that I want to challenge you and obviously myself to say something encouraging every day to some of the most important people in my life And for the last three days, I haven't done it. It's hard. It's not your mode of operation. But it's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. We're called to love one another. We're called to encourage one another. We're called to pour into relationships because we were made for those connections and we're better together. We're part of something bigger than ourselves and we need to live into that. So I want to close with a prayer for you to live into that, and for me. And I also want to give you the opportunity to, if you've never become a follower of Jesus, to start that. Because what I'm saying today doesn't make sense in the culture of the world, 
but it does make sense to followers of Jesus. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to become a part of the body of Christ today by telling him you believe in him and want to follow him. So I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer for those who want to follow Jesus for the first time. And then I'm going to pray for all of us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love that you created us to be in community with one another. Thank you for showing us that in scripture. Help us lean into that. But Lord, I I know if somebody's not a follower of Jesus, this this really seems counterintuitive to the way our world operates. But if you want to become a follower of Jesus and lean into that relationship, I invite you to pray these words back to him today. Just pray them silently where you are. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Go ahead and pray that silently. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe that he died to pay the price for my sins. And I believe that you raised him back to life. So today, I'm going to trust him as my savior. And I'm going to follow him all the days of my life. And we'll say amen to that part of our prayer time. And now, Lord, I pray for each one of us. Lord, you've put us in relationships, regardless of how we're wired, introvert or extrovert or somewhere in between. We need each other. And we need to build into those relationships and pour into them. So help us live into those in the best and the most healthy way that we possibly can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.